Welcome to the Fremont Presbyterian Church Podcast. Here at Fremont, we create space for people to become lifelong followers of Jesus, and we relentlessly pursue His transformation of our neighborhood, our city, and the world. Here's today's message. Colossians 1, 9-14 And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. This is God's word for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the testimony of your word that it is alive and active. It is more powerful than a two-edged sword. We pray that the sword of your word would graciously cut where it needs to cut, bring conviction where it needs to bring conviction, healing where it needs to bring healing, assurance where we need assurance. Pray for your spirit to open the eyes of our heart, to see the beauty of Christ. We pray that you would protect us against distraction. We pray that we'd be like little children whom receive your word and that you would do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ask or imagine as a result of hearing your word. In Jesus' name, amen. My grandparents were married for over 60 years. And almost every evening when my grandpa would come home from work, my grandma would have a dinner ready that she prepared with a heart of love. Like she knew his staples. I mean, like whatever that she made, it had to include potatoes. Like potatoes was this like key element of every dinner. So he was a rather quiet man um, for whatever reason on one night and just a very kind of matter of fact, polite tone after decades, he said, you know, I don't even like potatoes. And even though they had been married for years, there is this, this little piece of knowledge that my grandma didn't have about him, even though she, they probably knew the secrets of one another's heart. See, as, as wonderful as intentions as my grandma had, with this gap of knowledge, it prevented her from doing what she so earnestly desired. And that was to please him. And that's what our passage in Colossians is about today. Paul's prayer is that Colossians will be filled with the knowledge of God's will so they can fully please the Lord. And while the knowledge he's praying for isn't the end goal, it is a necessary launching pad into the end goal to ascribe great worth to the Lord. It's hard to fully please someone you vaguely know. So here's the main point, the big idea that we will discover in our passage today. Knowledge of God leads to bearing fruit for God. We're going to see it over and over. And it's also in your, in your bulletin too. 
Now, we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week as we're going verse by verse now for the next 10 weeks through Colossians. Um, and at whatever verse we're on today, it, that will be the background slide. You will, you will see it. And that way it's just easy for us to have eyes on the word of God because it's powerful. And I think we will receive it so, so much more as we're able to look upon it. So verse three, verses three through eight consists of why Paul prays for the Colossians. And then verses nine through 12 consists of what Paul prays for the Colossians. So Paul began the letter by thanking God for their faith in Christ and their love for one another. And then he went on this glorious tangent, just going on about how great this hope was. And now he comes back and he starts with the same language. And so since the day we heard, and so now he is praying in response to what he heard about the Colossians. All right, do you already notice something astonishing that's going on in this prayer? It was the good report that is leading Paul to pray and not the disastrous report. See, oftentimes what drives us to pray is we hear of a catastrophe, poor health, unfortunate life circumstances, financial decisions gone wrong. The better things are often the less we pray and the harder things are the more we pray. But not so with Paul. Things are pretty good in Colossae. We would say they're a pretty successful church plant, yet that didn't turn Paul's focus of prayer only to the problem churches. Like he's not sending a prayer request to Colossae for Corinth. He's not merely content for Christians uh, to, to be stagnant. He wants them to grow and experiencing the fullness of God, right? If life is Christ and Christ is life, he wants these realities to be impressed upon their hearts. And so it's a prayer that their walks wouldn't resemble floating down the lazy river of life, going with the currents of the world that say Christ is just one of many good things rather than the point of it all. Oh, that we would pray like this, that this would be our prayer. I want us to take us to another scripture and I want us to see the confidence that Paul had in prayer. Second uh, Corinthians chapter one, verses uh, 10 and 11. I'm gonna read it and then I'll stop. So he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Now, now, verse 11 is astounding. He says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through, through the prayers of many. Paul understood prayer to be this, this huge thing that God used. Now, a lot of times we may think something like this. God is going to do what God's going to do. So why should I pray? I don't know no one in here, but hypothetically. Now, if anyone had a robust understanding of the sovereignty of God, it was Paul, that God controls everything. Yet he also understood that under the umbrella of God's sovereignty, he has ordained prayer to be a means of grace in which he mediates blessings. And so a trust in the sovereignty of God is not meant to make us passive and fatalistic. It is meant to make us bold and confident. So now let's focus on the content of Paul's prayer. Now his overarching prayer for the Colossian church is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that they would fully please him. And I think we have to stop there because often when we consider God's will, we think of who should we marry? Should I take this job? Where should I go to school? Should I make this purchase? 
And, and those are all good things to pray for. But what Paul is doing is so much bigger than that. There are a couple ways that God's will is referred to in scripture. One is his will of decree. For instance, Christ is returning, will of decree, it's happening, it's fixed, unchanging. Then there's his will of command. And so, for instance, later in Colossians, we're going to read, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. That's a command. And, and the good news is the will of command is found in scripture. It's not hidden from us. And that's the type of will that Paul is praying for, for the Colossians. And so God's will of command, it becomes the spiritual infrastructure that supports all of the decisions that we make. And so as Colossians grow in a knowledge of God's will, it's going to enable them to sniff out the subtle man-made philosophies that are seeking to infiltrate their church and take them captive away from Christ. It's a safeguard against their spiritual walks. Here's what they're up against. We're gonna jump to Colossians 2, which will be in four or five weeks. Colossians 2, eight through 10, this gives you just a tip of the iceberg of what's going on in Colossae. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So to be filled with God's will is to be filled with a person and that person is Christ. And because Paul knows God's will of command so well, he's able to sniff out the nonsense going on. And the Colossians are being fed the bait that says, hey, Christ is good. He's just one of many other good philosophies amongst others. Take your pick. And these man-made philosophies are filled with knowledge, but they're knowledge that are emptying Christ rather than pointing to his fullness. And it's amazing as much of things have changed over the last 2000 years, how similarly the carrot gets dangled in front of us to make us think it's Christ plus something else when it's not. And so this prayer is a loving prayer that Paul is intentionally praying, combating what is going on in Colossae. I could, just, I could do a whole other sermon on how that should inform our prayer lives, but I won't. Okay. When we know God's will of command, it makes less obvious things clearer. More than this knowledge of God's will leading to specific details about like what career to pick or should I go left or right at this fork of the road, it produces principles in our lives that keep us within one of the four lanes of the highway rather than ending up in the ditch. The good news is, is we can honor God in any of these four lanes so long as we don't neglect his will of command and end up in the ditch. Now, sometimes it can be, we're human, I know, it can be so tempting to go throughout life and just kind of for the most part, kind of ignore the will of command and then get in a pinch and say, God, show me a sign. I need to know what to do. Now, making, wise, making a wise decision about something not specifically revealed in scripture, it will flow out of being filled with what is revealed in scripture. Like we can't shun the will of command and then expect at the 11th hour to have the spiritual database to draw on in order to make wise decisions. And sometimes we may view this prayer for God's will to be something like all of a sudden we just get passively zapped and we're just like inundated. But often what we see with prayers in the Bible is prayer prompts action 
often it prompts very seemingly ordinary action that produces extraordinary results. I want to take us to a passage in 2 Timothy, kind of because it's so ordinary, but this is what Paul is instructing Timothy to do with his instructions. He simply tells Timothy, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. I, I don't think that's the first thing that comes to mind when we're thinking about discerning God's will of command. We just kind of want a, a zap. The way we get to know God's will of command is to get to know him. And the way we get to know him is to get to know his word. And that's Paul's prayer for the Colossians and for us. And being filled with the knowledge of God's will usually comes through the drip system and not through the fire hydrant. It's typically steady like bearing fruit. If you stare at the growth chart on the wall, you see nothing. If you walk away and come back, then you see the growth. So don't be discouraged. All right, so so far we've heard a lot about knowledge, knowledge. Does Paul want us to be brains on sticks? Like, is this the point of, what is the point of it all? The second part of verse nine in Greek is probably better rendered, which consists of all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So Paul's prayer for the Colossians that he'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will is so much more than being filled with just a bunch of facts about God. Knowledge of God's will is meant to manifest in spirit generated wisdom and insight that skillfully leads to applying that knowledge. How easy it is to turn facts about God, much like we turn facts about math and never take it out of the spiritual classroom to wisely apply it and intersect in every aspect of our lives. And this is a prayer from Paul that everything we do on Sundays would permeate every fabric and fiber of our lives. There's another place where the same term, spiritual wisdom and understanding is used. And it's in the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And it's talking about two guys who have been given this spirit-empowered wisdom and understanding to construct the tabernacle, which was the place of worship where God's presence dwelt. Now, in the new covenant, this side of the cross The Bible says we are temples in which God resides by his spirit. So perhaps what Paul is praying here is that our lives would reflect a spirit endowed wisdom in the way that we construct our temples that would ascribe much beauty and worth to the Lord. And that's what he's going to begin to get at now in verse 10, as we're once again reminded that knowledge of God leads to bearing fruit for God. So verse 10, let's just, those first two words, what do they say? Let's read them out together. So as, those are so key, even though like prepositions seem so boring, right? It's this connecting thing. Knowledge of God in verse nine enables walking worthy in verse 10. The end goal of knowledge is to display the worth of the Lord. The more we know about the Lord, the more worth we can ascribe to him. We cannot praise that which we do not know. So ascribing worth to the Lord isn't less than knowledge, but it is more than knowledge. And unfortunately, sometimes we live in a day and age where we act like we have to choose between being filled with the knowledge of God and pleasing God. But with Paul and Christ, it's never an either or, it's a both and, right? And you would say on one hand, you would have some would say, well, why do you have to be so dogmatic about scripture? It really doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you do good things. 
And I think Paul would say to that, well, how are you going to define good without God defining good? Apart from us all drawing on the same source of the will of command, we're all going to have different definitions of what a life fully pleasing looks like. We're going to be like the book of Judges, the theme verse, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But on the other hand, you have some who would take pride in these finer finer doctrinal points, but then miss the middle step of spiritual wisdom and understanding applying that knowledge and then maybe would be aloof and not fully pleasing. And so then you have this side over here who shuns knowledge saying, well, they're unloving. And you have this side over here saying, well, they don't care about knowledge. And Paul and Jesus saying, well, why do you got to choose? One flows out of the other. Okay, verse 10. Do you find it a bit peculiar how it ends? It ends where it began with another mention of knowledge. He begins and he ends, but sandwiched in between here is the doing of knowledge, the bearing fruit, ascribing worth, the practical things. I think this might be what's going on. It's a little bit like driver's ed. You need the classroom and you need to get behind the wheel. So there's a form of knowledge that comes in the classroom, but there's a form of knowledge that comes on the playground. There's a form of knowledge that comes in the books. There's a form of knowledge that comes from doing what's in the books. There's a form of knowledge that is intellectual. There's a form of knowledge that is experiential. The point of being filled with the knowledge of God's will is to be so stunned by his beauty that we want to obey. And then as we obey, we learn more about him. And then as we learn more about him, we want to more fully please him. And as we more fully please him, we want to know more about him. And it's this amazing upward cyclical effect where both forms of knowledge are driving us into the very heart of Christ. Scripture says, uh, and I think this ties in perfect right here, uh, when revelation or knowledge is given about God and it is acted upon, more is given. But when knowledge or revelation is given and it's not acted upon, even what they have is taken away. Now, if, if, if the prayer stopped here, the Colossians might be like, Paul, this is a pretty tall order. How are we going to pull this off in our own strength? The good news is the prayer doesn't end here. And in verse 11, we're assured that he not only reveals his will of command, he enables his will of command. And we are, he has promised to strengthen us with power. When I was a kid, we spent a summer at my aunt and uncle's house on the East Coast. And one time we went out on this little sailboat on the ocean, but the genius of this boat is it had a built-in motor within it. And so inevitably when the breeze stopped blowing, in order for us not to get stranded, that motor came in pretty handy in order to get back to shore. How comforting it is to know when the breezes of life stop blowing that we have a built-in power source vastly superior to the motor on that boat. Paul prays for power, the same Power that raised Christ from the dead, we read in Ephesians. It's according to his glorious might. There are no roaming blackouts with his power source. Now the outcome, the so that of this resurrection power, it's right there in our verse, is that so they would be filled with endurance and patience and it's all undergirded by joy. See, we know, humanly speaking, there's resistance to bearing fruit. And we will need endurance and patience. And so endurance is the outward lasting so we don't collapse. While patience is the inward disposition to suffer long that we may bear fruit. So as we grow in knowledge of God, we grow in love for God. As we grow in love for God, we grow in joy for God. And as we grow in joy for God, we grow in endurance for God.
And I want to show us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, how the joy enables endurance. And let's read this together. This is a great verse. Hebrews 12, 2. It's on the screen. Let's read it together. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christian endurance and patience is not stoicism. It is fueled by joy. Let's just ask this. What is the natural outcome of a father that enables all these things to happen? Well, it's Thanksgiving, which is what he gets at in verse 12. So in light of God's goodness and resurrection power, he's saying Thanksgiving needs to cascade off their tongues like water does a rock. It just, it just needs to flow. And, and so what we're seeing here is that the father has qualified them for this inheritance, this hope in heaven, Christ himself we read about last week. So God's qualifying grace, it is, it's the foundation by which all blessings in the prayer are able to come. See, disqualified people don't receive inheritances. And think about this. If they hypothetically qualified themselves, they inevitably would soon disqualify themselves, which would drain their spiritual batteries of joy and endurance. I think he uses the word father here because fathers are the one who gives inheritances. How does a father qualify, give a son or a daughter inheritance? Adoption and preservation. He's saying the Colossians have been adopted, but they've been given endurance to persevere in their adoption, to see them all the way through to the end to get that inheritance. And so Christ's assurance is when we feel like we are weary and tired and we are heavy laden, that his promise is that his power will keep us through to the end. And now let's We'll look at these last two verses that make everything we talked about possible. Verses 13 and 14, they assure us we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, delivered into the kingdom of sun. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Darkness throughout scripture represents an absence of a knowledge of God. We can't see in darkness. And the Bible says that everyone belongs to one of these two kingdoms. We're either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of his beloved son. Do you remember what Jesus, his conversation with Nicodemus in John 3? He said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Because of the effects of sin, even religious people like Nicodemus aren't born into the kingdom of Christ. There must be a decisive transfer that took place just as it has with the Colossians. Each person is either in the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of his son. And the fact that the father has qualified us means at one point we were disqualified. But the good news of this passage is we weren't delivered into neutrality. We weren't transferred out of darkness into a neutral kingdom. We were transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So how does this transfer take place? How does one go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of sun? And verse 14 gives us our path to it through our sins being forgiven and the redemption that produces. When Christ was on the cross, darkness, darkness came over the land. The light of the world by darkness was slain so that those of us who were in darkness could experience the light of life. 
What the powers of darkness did not know is that the light of the world would extinguish darkness by allowing darkness to extinguish him. Look at how Paul puts it in Colossians 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. I love 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, Satan and demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So when he disarmed the rulers, he defanged Satan himself. He can bark. He cannot inflict a lethal bite anymore. The one weapon that Satan had was unforgiven sin, but Christ canceled that debt and leaving Satan without accusation against all who have been transferred into his kingdom. And when this happened, he removed the one barrier that had kept us separated from God. At his death, the veil on the temple tore from top to bottom, signifying that we can directly approach God's throne of grace. We can approach him to know him. We can know him to love him. And we can love him to enjoy him. And so church, knowledge of God leads to bearing fruit for God. Last week, our response was in Colossians 3, 1 through 4 to memorize that. This week, I am encouraging us as a response to pray through this passage, this prayer, this prayer by Paul in Colossians 1, 9 through 14. If the spirit prompted Paul to pray this prayer, how much more will we benefit from praying this prayer for ourselves and for our church and praying the very spirit-inspired words over our lives. Let us be people who grow together in a knowledge of God's will so that we will ascribe great worth to him. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you that you've given us a prayer like this in scripture. We pray so much that your spirit would keep this just from being intellectual head knowledge, but you embed these truths deep within our heart and give us the ability to apply these truths to our lives for the sake that Christ, his worth might be known through our lives to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Fremont Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope that you were blessed by the message. You can send your questions or comments directly to us at podcast at fremontpress.org. That's podcast at fremontpress.org. We'd love to see you on a Sunday morning. We have classic worship in the sanctuary at 9 a.m. and modern worship in the Community Life Center at 10.30 a.m. You can find the live stream of both of those services at fremontpress.org. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed to get the latest episode each week automatically. Thanks for listening.